Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Thinking about crime, what causes it, how to solve it, and what we think might prevent it, has always been a reflection of the society we live in. Today, we'll look at some of the major theories around criminology at a high level, and what they said about the times they were formulated in. Let's begin. Okay, we're here on HL101, and I'm joined by Dan McGinnis. Good evening. I'm glad to have you back on the show. It's been a while. Yes, it has. And today we're going to be talking about, I'm going to call it early modern criminology, just because I'm not sure exactly how to title this show in a succinct manner. But basically we're going to be talking about, on one hand, the way that people have thought about crime on a social level throughout history and what kind of informed those schools of thought. And on the other, we're going to be going to be talking about the way that people have investigated and processed crimes uh, on an individual level so different tools that they've developed and things like that and so i think in in the interests of keeping everything well divided or, or well, well organized we'll kind of do one and one half and one and the other so i don't know if that makes some sense to me i'm sure they'll bleed into each other oh yeah quite a bit but uh we'll, we'll try at least okay first thing i want to talk about is gonna sound like it's not really super salient but we'll get into why we're going to define something called pseudoscience. Um, mesmerism. We're not going to talk about mesmerism today. Dang. Mesmerism is ridiculous. I love mesmerism on a sort of arm's length level. Mesmerism, of course, being animal magnetism created by, I want to say, Joseph Mesmer. His it's, name yeah. was Mesmer. Oh, yeah. it was. De- that's the, one of the most delightful things about it is that it's it's actually his name. Mesmer. Yeah. And... Basically, the theory is that there's there's um, the, the fluids running through your body can be kind of manipulated by magnetic fields, or at least that's where the field ended up. But originally, he basically just thought that he could just exert his will over other people in sort of like a, an old-timey hypnotist sort of way. In fact, hypnotism was an attempt to sci- kind of scienceify mesmerism, <laughs> which should tell you all you need to know the about mesmerism. The most intellectually legitimate version. <laughs> But yeah, it's 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 interesting stuff. But no, we're not going to get into mesmerism. Hey, you know what? We might we might mention it <laughs> once. Other than this, anyways. No, pseudoscience is basically anything presented as scientific, but which but which does not actually adhere to the scientific method. So things that you want to watch out for are things like unprovable claims, obviously, over reliance on confirmation and an aversion to refutation. 
So basically having lots of proof for it, but not wanting to deal with any claims against it is like a big red flag. And that's a little bit more subtle than, than things like just making outrageous claims. Any lack of evaluation by other people in the field, any lack of access to the data that they use to create these theories, and especially um, kind of a reliance on testimonial as evidence. So mm-hmm. basically people's experiences. Because there's a lot of fields out there, and, and they continue to this day, that will claim to be based in science, but are actually not dealt with scientifically at all, right? And a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about today, especially early on in criminology, are like full-blown pseudoscience. Because everyone kind of acts like the, the, the scientific revolution came about, and all of a sudden everyone knew how to do science perfectly. And everything is science now. Yeah, everything is science, and it's... Um, it's always objective and it's always properly executed and all of the the findings that come from it are just kind of refinements from there. This dude is using a beaker. Clearly he's a scientist. <laughs> Look at his white coat. Definitely, Look. definitely legit. Yes, of snake oil. I mean, it's in the beaker, so it's got some legitimacy already. Perfect. Mrs. H. Jones from Cincinnati says that it worked real good for her. <laughs> really what we're looking for, and, and this is the thing that I, I found really interesting when I was doing research on this because I, I wasn't aware of it but you've got the the classical scientific method right like the the whole you create a hypothesis you create a a uh, an experiment to check on that hypothesis using controls you know isolate variables all of that stuff that you're taught in grade 10 right um refinement of the theory based on your conclusions and then external review by peers you want it um uh, repeatable to make sure that it's true one of the things that we were always taught which is falsifiability was actually not really entered into the standard scientific method until the 1930s by a philosopher named Karl Popper. Oh, Popper. And falsifiability is this idea that just because you manage to confirm something is true, that isn't quite good enough. You actually have to demonstrate a way in which it could be false and then test for that as well. Because you can come up with a lot of claims that could be tested as true, but that's using your subset of data. If you can find anything that shows that that hypothesis to be false, that should really exclude it from being a scientific truth, right? Basically, they get cause and effect backwards is usually what ends up happening there. So you could do an experiment saying that I think that all brown birds are ostriches, and you could look at a bunch of ostriches and say that they're all brown, and you can go, okay, perfect, brown birds are ostriches. And we look at that and go, well, no, that's not true because there are tons of birds that are brown that aren't ostriches. You've got things mixed up. And that's easy to see kind of on a, on a really simplified, simplified, you know, yeah. everyday level. That's not that hard. But the problem was that there were a lot of like true scientists, people who were doing scientific work that were making conclusions in that manner without checking to make sure that there weren't brown birds that are not ostriches before presenting their conclusions as scientific fact. Yeah, it's almost lacking the ability to to reason backwards from the line of thinking that you currently have. It's not necessarily obvious. Well, and, and part of the problem is that the first step of that scientific process is coming up with a, a hypothesis, a thing that you think is correct, and then testing for it. And it's, a, it's an issue in the testing of your hypothesis, because the first thing that happens when you come up with a hypothesis like that is you have your own biases that are intrins- uh, that are introduced into the process, and you're looking for that thing to be true. Popper is basically saying maybe we should be looking for that thing to be false and it's only when we can prove that it's not false or rather when we fail to find a, a, 
a case in which it is false that we can consider it uh, a scientific theory. So with that in mind, we're going to move into some of the really early ideas on criminology. Before the Renaissance, basically, we didn't really talk a whole lot about crime on a macro level. There were laws, people broke the laws, they were criminals, chop off a hand or whatever. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. What really comes out of the Renaissance is this thought process that, you know, people are individuals, they have free will and are rational. They make decisions based on things like cost benefit analysis. And you start kind of wondering, well, you know, if there are, if there are punishments for crimes, then why would people do crimes in the first place? That doesn't make any sense. And also at this point in time, you get this sort of really idealized version of what human beings were or are. And there's a lot of this kind of old, almost medieval thinking that sort of leeches into it as, as you know, human beings being these noble creatures that are higher than animals in the, in the order of things and that are, are um, you know, capable of, of great works of intelligence and, and creativity and, and all of this stuff. Look like, at all the stuff we've painted. It, well, the, yeah, the whole, the whole Renaissance concept of the human being is kind of precious Mm-hmm. almost it's it's beautiful but kind of naive you look at it and, and kind of go all oh, yeah bless your hearts but there were a couple of people that did work on on you know thinking about what is a criminal why are people criminals in in uh, the 1700s most notably uh cesare vicaria and a guy named jeremy bentham it doesn't really matter who it was but really in the 1760s so this is just prior to the American Revolution to kind of give you some context of of uh, where Europe is at, they really they were they were looking at you know what what is a person's place in society, right? It wasn't just about the individual anymore. They were also looking at things like you know the rights of of people politically and socially. So yeah, this, this is this, before a lot of the major revolutionary stuff in Europe, right? Right, but this is when a lot of the literature that sort of informed these yeah. revolutions was absolutely being written right at this point yeah, in time. Yeah, the big thinking. Yeah. A lot of these books are really interesting. If you ever get a chance to to read, you know, things like Thomas Paine or or some of those those revolutionary thinkers, it's it's really interesting stuff. Again, very highly idealized. There's this sort of almost platonic idea of what a human being should be. And uh, Beccaria and Bentham basically said that you know, people have free will and are rational act- actors. Therefore, they should be able to be deterred by punishment. And this is cr- uh, considered the classical school of criminology because it's really the first time that we talked about it as a, a holistic uh, discipline, right? And so the conclusion that comes out of this is make punishments worse because the worse you make punishments, the less likely people are going to be to do crimes, if if the crime for everything is death, well, maybe you're going to think more before you do the crimes. You'll, All problems solved. You'll, you'll weigh the options. You'll think about the consequences of your actions, and you won't do those crimes. Domestic peace. Problem solved. <laughs> the two of them are thrown up on shoulders and run through the center of town, hailed as heroes for solving all of the crimes. Solution, murder everyone. The problem there, obviously, and it, it seems, again, kind of almost almost preciously naive is is that well that's not why people do crimes at all they're not thinking about the consequences when they do crimes that's that's not that's not how people work and so that's the the thinking about crime though that informed 
things like the new criminal laws in the the newly created United States in the in the very early days. They were, you know, looking at jails as punishment rather than as um, you know any sort of steps towards reform. They were looking at again overly overly heavy corporal punishment for a variety of uh, of offenses. And then you get France, obviously, you get them going through the, the French Revolution, you get the terror, and, and you got your head chopped off for looking at somebody the wrong way, or for rumors of anti-revolutionary sentiment, or, or what have you. I mean, the, the terror is famous for the number of people executed, and it's it's just for political thought. And, and a lot of that comes down to political extremism, absolutely. But there is also this thought of, basically, people doing crimes must believe in their crimes enough that you need to punish them more in order for them to stop doing the crimes. That's the solution to crime is punish them more, punish them more, more deterrence. And that's, that's how you stop it. So is it kind of a categorical view of people doing crime as uh, bad actors without any thought to their background or, or what, you know, is it ignoring class and, and it, it does certainly ignore class. It also sees people as um, inherently hedonistic mm. so that, they would basically if there were no laws in place people would be doing crimes all over the place all the time because that's what they want to do the reason that people don't take possessions from their neighbors is because they'd go to jail and they don't want to go to jail it's very low on the whole uh moral development scale um or, or that's that's the assumption of people anyways and that the the thing stopping people from doing that is their higher order of reasoning so that there's this um, almost Freudian tension between what people want to do and this ability to reason the consequences of those actions. And so every decision that has anything to do with a crime is a straight cost-benefit analysis. And the people who do crime do so because they believe that the benefit of committing that crime is higher than the cost that they would have to pay for doing that crime. So, for example, you know, something like a murder is basically someone under this model is someone that believes that even though they know that they'll be executed for the crime, they believe that that's worth killing this person that they're murdering. Okay. It's, again, a very kind of naive, oh. idealistic look at crime, and it, it ignores a lot of factors. Yes. But that's why we get to our next section which is the positivist school which kind of comes up in the 19th century and this is big especially in like victorian britain but throughout europe in the 19th century and basically the positivist school is this this reaction to darwinism in a lot of ways as well as a lot of other um kind of anthropological advances in the 19th century because as much as the 18th century is very much about this like philosophical idealist sort of look at human beings as a as a group as a whole all of a sudden they're finding uh neanderthal remains they're finding uh dinosaur bones they're finding you know these things to suggest that the earth is much older than that than they thought there's things to suggest that human beings weren't always advanced as they were darwin comes out with his theory first of evolution of animals and then applies it to human beings this is a big problem for victorian society it, it shakes up a lot of things but the ultimate sort of consequence of this is that there's a huge about face on where human beings sit in relationship to the rest of the world. And we kind of almost went too far in the opposite direction where we started thinking of human beings as 
sort of base animals that are basically slave to their uh, their biology, to their instincts, to their their nature, to the inherent attributes of their how they were born that that defines them. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of a weird about face, but you, th- this is this is like really prevalent in Victorian thinking. It's it's strongly prevalent. So it turns out we don't have to feel bad about all the bad things that we do. Well, that's the interesting thing. How do you reconcile that with free will in any way? And I mean, both of these schools of thought are uh, really simplistic. But I really want to talk about the positivist school because it has a lot of uh, repercussions even to this day, even though that's not really how we think of criminals. It's not really what we blame crime on necessarily. But as we talk more and more about this, you're going to see a lot of things that feel like really uncomfortably familiar. Oh, that's one thing I also didn't mention to you before we started recording. We're going to talk a lot about racism today. Oh, fun. Yay. Surprise. Don't you love talking about racism? Yeah. Uh, Yep. We're going to say some uncomfortable things. So just buckle up, sit tight. We'll make it through together. I promise. Should have seen that coming. Along with this sort of, you know, broad sentiment of, of man as animal, I mean, there's also been a lot of developments in biology and science has kind of moved away from i mean all the really easy science was done like real quick like all the fun stuff Uh uh-huh newton just had to well i mean nobody had said the stuff about you uh about uh about gravity he just kind of wrote it down and he was good to go yeah that's basically it no, of course he was a genius. Of course he was incredibly talented. That's not the point. The point being that uh, things like the the basic tenets of, of physics were figured out relatively easily because, you know, they're fairly universal. And we start getting into less concrete sciences than physics, and we start getting really heavy into biology. 19th century was like absolutely the, the, the century of biology. We got real heavy into botany, into entomology, like all the, all the weird little, like, you know, classifying bugs and all that stuff. Just they, easy. Classify all of the things that are alive into these discrete columns. Yeah. There's got to be like, what, six or eight? I don't know, something like that. Yeah. No problem. But, you know, this is where you get people, you know, drawing the, those absolutely beautifully detailed drawings of flowers and, and sort of breaking them up into various kingdoms and phylums and all that stuff. Along with that, there comes like this natural curiosity about human beings because there's at various times in history been sort of this um, taboo against really learning a lot about the human body. It just as in terms of like a reverence towards human remains as, you know, former housings of, of actual human people, there's long been a taboo against, you know, performing autopsies about, about um, dissecting human corpse corpses, which at certain points in, in time kind of hindered our ability to learn about medical science, which is unfortunate, but I'm, I'm glad that nowadays doctors go to medical school and learn everything that we know about the four humors. <laughs> I love talking about the four humors. I don't know what it is about backwards ideas like that, that, that appeal to me, but I just really love it. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why. I recently learned that in the uh, 19th century, there was a scientist who decided that the the uh, humor, four humors theory wasn't complete enough it, it wasn't a good assessment of reality a fifth humor he he rebranded things uh, and included phlogiston starts with a ph phlogiston is it's uh, well, it's, it's part of the four uh, elements 
actually not well, yeah numbers. the four humors associated with the four elements yeah that's, that's so just, so fundamentally the four the four elements of phlogiston is it's, we were we were mistaken about dirt there's actually three types of dirt and one of them one of the types of dirt is uh the what's released in combustion things burn because like they're ash. just full of phlogiston ash yeah well uh no but no it's the it's the it's the it's the thing that allows things to burn it's the it's the oh yeah Okay. And it's released not oxygen binding with other elements in a chemical reaction, but phlogiston is this magic. It's a, it's we're filled with it, and it just it's like a gas. Neat. Yeah. Oh, humorous. It's it's a little terrifying when you consider how recently modern medicine was developed. We didn't have germ <laughs> theory until the 1850s. Like I mean, <laughs> nope. We're we're not. We're not that far out. We know everything about the body that there is, oh, and all of our decisions no. are completely rational, uh, and nothing is a gamble. You think about the the developments after the scientific revolution, like even things like the microscope, looking at looking at tissue and realizing that it's made up of cells. <laughs> Just like they figured that out, and it was like, oh, okay, this makes some sense. Imagine that day. Imagine like actually looking through a microscope for the first time, going, "Holy, holy! This is filled with tiny things." <laughs> Everyone come over here and look. Guys, check this out. My yeah. skin is amazing. I mean, I, I prefer the fact that I prefer thinking about the fact that, you know, that happened a really long time before Louis Pasteur was like, hey guys, what if what if foreign little things like that are what's making us sick? Or even worse, that his colleagues were 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 all like, nah, it's the miasma, man. It's bad vapors. <laughs> Just, vapors hanging around. <laughs> oh man. Medical medical history is just fantastic stuff it's That's probably terrifying, another but... few shows oh, on its own yeah no kidding but anyways you know want, wanting to learn more about the human body is a natural thing and and so i i pulled out a couple of specific things that we we developed in the 19th century that i, I want to talk about as we talk about sort of what what creates a criminal what makes people into criminals the first one we're going to talk about is something called uh craniometry phrenology Nope, that's a different one. Uh-huh. We'll get to phrenology. Don't don't worry. Okay. We're absolutely going to get to phrenology. Good. I I would be upset. Nope, craniometry is just the measurement of the cranium. Mhm. We got really curious about what made us smarter than everything else. That's a natural thing to think about. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that you'll notice about human beings when you just observe them in comparison to number 1 our closest apparent relatives, so the great apes, and number 2 just most animals in general is that our heads are really big compared to the rest of our bodies by that time we know that brains are, are made for thinking we got that figured out good work everybody and there's a definite like there, there's an immediate conclusion that like okay size of your brain makes you smarter okay so far so good so we started measuring the skull we wanted to learn more about skulls not just human skulls but all skulls in general figure out what it is about the size of the brain that makes us smarter. Now, this is a little misguided. The, the size of the cranium is really more of a response to the size of the brain than it is the other way around. But we figured, hey, well, I, I mean, they go hand in hand, really. But it's, it's really more about the parts of the brain that develop that contribute to intelligence. A anyway, we're getting way off track. Mm -hmm. uh, main point is craniometry was not the be-all and end-all. And it probably would have been relegated to a fairly unimportant corner of science until a guy named Samuel George Morton came along uh, and said, hey, you guys, 
I can tell you what race a person is by the size of their head. <laughs> it's a neat trick. Uh-oh. Now we're in trouble. Now, Morton, to his credit, went through and measured a lot of bra- a lot of heads. I was going to say a lot of brains. No, he, he measured a lot of craniums, hmm. which is a different thing, slightly. And, you know, this guy lived 1799 to 1851. He's pretty early on. He went in to this whole endeavor with a definite conclusion in mind. And he was looking to find it. Namely that white skulls are the biggest. <laughs> That's what he was hoping for. Yep. And um, Did he happen to be white? Oh, absolutely. As a lily. Um, no, basically he went in also with the assumption that volume of cranial cavity is directly proportional to intelligence, which it's not. We've oh. learned since. What? No, 100%. I mean, they've got they've got Einstein's brain down at McMaster, or a good chunk of it. Um, the biggest thing that they found about it was that it was completely normal sized. What was a little bit different about it than the average brain was uh, the the density of neurons, the the how how tightly they were packed, especially in the basically in the frontal lobe, the in the the top of the brain, the thing that makes us actually intelligent in sort of a reasoning way. But that's again another another topic altogether it's it's not what makes us smarter however there are certain characteristics about different races that make their physiology different and that's why we categorize it that way it's it's, it's uncomfortable to talk about actual biological differences between people of different races or different ethnic origins particularly since there's no hard lines at all whatsoever well absolutely that's that's very 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 much true but Anytime you mention it, people get super uncomfortable. And I understand why. Basically, if you don't put a hard line on that, you're going to get yourself in trouble. And so that's why you don't get things like, I, I mean, there are specific um, medical conditions that are specific to different ethnic groups. You won't hear about them unless you're part of that ethnic group. Because we just try not to talk about that differences stuff because of a very uncomfortable history. I get it. That's fine. But what you did see with Morton's studies is that people of certain ethnic origins had different cranial volumes. The significance of the differences is widely disputed. Number one, it's been contended that Morton packed the skulls more tightly with, uh, he, he was using like a, a wads of fabric basically to measure the, the volume. It, it was a really, it, it was a really odd uh, process that he used, but basically he, he, may have packed the white skulls more full to give it the appearance of more volume. Other people have, have said that he did just a fine job of it. I don't know. I'm no craniometer. <laughs> but it was so widely published and so widely accepted because it fit, it fit really well into Victorian worldviews. Fit their narrative. It really, really well. To the point where they were actually starting to question whether there were multiple... Uh, origins of the species whether people of other ethnic origins were in fact descended from the same ancestors that's uncomfortable yeah gets into super uncomfortable territory now darwin to his credit said that's absolute baloney that's impossible he said that you know guys get get over yourselves basically i mean the guy was no saint but i wish he'd been an angrier old man (laughs) he was an angry enough old man yeah but not like he, I wish he'd been out waving his cane. 
<laughs> you people haven't read that. Yeah. It, I don't know. He he got he got enough stuff right that I I have no trouble feeling that on the balance he did a pretty good job in the world. That's true. Morton's work was kind of gone over by so many people that were doing uh, neurology work at this point in time, stuff like that. Uh, Dr. Paul Broca, who you may have heard of, famous neurologist, did a lot of work on uh, language in mm-hmm. the brain. Broca's area. Broca's area, exactly, um, which is responsible for the way we learn language. It's it's incredibly famous. Yeah, he was also, like, did way more work on, again, racial differences in brains. There's this thing that happens with certain famous people where, like, you look at certain things that they do and you find them really admirable. And then you find out that they also did some really terrible stuff. It happens all the time. And we've just kind of agreed to ignore that. Yeah, for more the most or less. Part. He also noted the difference between genders in uh, volume. Even better. So, yeah, he, he was a super cool guy. I mean... You see, you see it all over the place. We do the same thing with with Isaac Newton, who we mentioned earlier, and the fact that he was like the biggest <gasps> jerk. Well, not only was he a giant jerk, but he also did like so much research on alchemy. <laughs> <laughs> the founder of the the, the, the Royal Academy in in London, one of the most famous scientists in the world, like he was definitely definitely full of mercury poisoning because all the mercury he drank definitely for sure. <laughs> He was trying to create a philosopher's stone. Think about that. Uh, or you'll get guys like uh, Linus Pauling. Do you know about Linus Pauling? Yes. I can't offhand remember what he did. Uh, he He's famous for getting a Nobel Prize both in uh, chemistry for his work on basically electron bonds. Mm. Uh, he did some really interesting stuff in that and uh, that and precursors to DNA research. And he also got a Nobel Peace Prize for his work in uh, basically opposing nuclear testing, just like wherever, which had been kind of the standard up until the 50s. You know, wherever. (laughs) So lovely beach. Let's blow it up. Considered one of the like, I I believe he was considered one of the 20 most um, influential and important American scientists of all time. And I can't remember which. Uh thing i was reading about now you're gonna ruin them yeah he also was a huge proponent of massive doses of vitamin c used to cure cancer was for the rest of his life wrote a lot of books about it oh probably was it because it starts with c Hmm? was it because it starts with c i listen i don't know what his reasoning is necessarily all i know is that he's very wrong that's not true that's not how you treat cancer cancer is a horrible thing and often not treatable and that makes people turn to sometimes very desperate measures and he made a lot of money off of uh one of those desperate measures i don't know how much he believed in it i i would assume wholeheartedly that doesn't make him right he should have done better science he was a nobel award winning scientist multiple nobels so this happens with scientists it Uh. does it happens with them they're not they're not perfect not by any long shot. And so you get the same thing with Broca, where, yeah, he did amazing work on the foundations of neurology and psychology with his with his work on, you know, specifically Broca's area, but the whole language center of the brain. And yet he also contended in multiple papers that women were less intelligent than men because they had smaller cranial cavities. <sighs> cool guy. What does this have to do with crime? Uh, I think we're going to take a quick break. Let everyone recover from craniometry. Just, 
Just soaking that. Yeah. And then we're going to come back swinging with phrenology and yeah. really get into the nitty gritty of what this has to do with making a criminal. Cool. Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Dan McGinnis. Yellow. And we're talking about uh, craniometry, measurement of the volume of the cranium. And there's certainly nothing bad associated with that. Yeah, no, I forgot to mention, actually, before we went to break, that a lot of Nazi scientists were a big fan of, uh, of Morton's work. And that really killed Morton's work after the war, which is probably for the best. <laughs> it's really not cool to be associated with them. Well, they used it less for... Because, I mean, when, when Morton was doing it, he was looking at the, oh, I'm going to feel bad about this, about the three traditional classifications of human being specifically the caucasoid negroid and mongoloid mm -hmm. which is, is just ugh. is he the one that made those words no, up it had been going for a long it was time. 1700s wasn't it uh-huh i yep. think so yep something like that anyways doesn't matter let's let's keep rolling those are okay distasteful words i don't know when they i don't know when they originated i haven't looked into them one guy it was one specific really yep one guy was like yep this this shape of person definitely from the caucasus huh I'm going to look that person up and we're going to put his name in the notes and he's going to have to deal with it. Sounds good. Ah, that's, that's rough. He was a jerk. Come on, dude. The, the Nazis used it more to classify Aryans versus Slavs and Jews and things like that, that they didn't particularly like. But yeah, after that, really it's, it's gotten relegated to like, like the super racist people. Hmm. Like when you get Klansmen coming forward sometimes talking about this stuff. and I've been, I've been reading some really good stuff. Yeah. But it's, it's, I also don't know if I clarified enough, but like the, the statistical variance within the classifications that he was using are so big that they overlap massively to a point where his, his averages that he used to prove this are, are meaningless. It's not, it's not valid work. Well, like yeah. not in any way. It's something that can't be shown statistically, so... People's heads are different sizes. That's about what we get to, you know, from, like, a real, like, scientific manner. Mm. Uh, so with that, we'll move on to phrenology. Yeah. Phrenology comes from an interesting understanding of the brain. Which, surprisingly, when, when you look at, like, the very base of it, is relatively accurate. They proposed, phrenologists, and I mean, this was developed mainly by one main guy uh, in 1796 by a man named Franz Joseph Gall, who basically said that the brain isn't just like one lump thing on its own. It's actually made up of 27 distinct organs, each with its own function. And that's not entirely untrue about the brain. I mean, it's not. It's not right. It's the wrong number. <laughs> wrong number it's also things like wrong locations and, and all sorts of things wrong but Very there are wrong. specific or, uh, parts of the brain that are specific or, or that are responsible for specific tasks within it, the brain it's a good advancement from what what there was before which was i don't know what this thing does but it seems important it's a big lump kill of him, meat. let's take it out yeah <laughs> we did it <laughs> no but he, he came up with this map of the brain you've probably seen pictures of it which is basically just a guy with a head and he's like bald and then it's got like dotted lines drawn on the head blobs everywhere just blobs numbered everywhere blobs with yep. little words in them and it'll be like yep this is the thing that's responsible for x surliness 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Violence, um, or or things like one thing that I always remember is affection for one's offspring, and that one I always also remember the location for, which is at the very bottom back of the brain, down here, like near where the spine attaches. That's. We're gonna get to why. Yeah, I know. Why would I remember that, right? But phrenology as a science was this idea that, that that you were born with the brain that you've got, and that basically the parts of the brain that are responsible for different things are they they develop to the degree that you actually use those parts of your brain, and it's usually like characteristics, like like of of, of your character, of your personality, rather than actual you know motor functions and things like that. So. Someone who was overviolent, overly violent would have an overly developed violent section of the brain and it would just be bigger there. Mm-hmm. And that your cranium actually responds to these growths of the brain with either lumps or divots where things are either over or underused. And so that the only way that you could really get a look into someone's personality in a scientific manner would be measuring their head, looking for any bumps or divots and using that versus a phrenology map uh, to determine whether or not they over or underuse that portion of the brain. This is not true. <laughs> this is wrong. Spoiler. <laughs> they, they did bad. Yeah. Um, people have lumps on their heads. Again, it's just a thing that happens and biology craniums get shaped weird sometimes you can see the thinking though that the desire to make measurable something that is inherently intangible in Mm -hmm. a numeric sense yeah and and this is kind of what i was coming or what i was trying to convey when talking about the the falsifiability because the way that someone like gall would go about testing this would be he would go he would look for a number of people for example, if he's looking for, I mean, we're, we're trying to focus on crime here. He, if he's looking for something responsible for criminal behavior, he's going to go to a prison. He's going to examine people's heads. He's going to try and figure out where there are the most bumps uh, or where there's most commonly a bump. He's going to call that the crime center and he's going to be done with it. What he's not going to do is go into the general population, take a, a, a general sample and look for people with that bump and see if there are people in the general population who have never committed a crime in their lives that have an overly developed brain in that spot, supposedly, according to the methodology of, of his discipline. Well, of course he's not going to do that. Those people haven't committed any crimes, and he doesn't want to be arresting them for no reason whatsoever, but he would be obligated to if he knew they had giant criminal centers. And that's the sticking point of phrenology, isn't it? Because... You're not just looking for descriptive things with phrenology. You're also looking for uh, predictive things. What you're saying is that somebody with a certain characteristic is uh, prone to or even uh, likely to exhibit certain behaviors. And that's on its own, not necessarily like a a dangerous idea. I mean, he's just trying to figure out if there's a way for us to learn anything about people's personalities uh, via external characteristics, which is a really common idea at this point in time, that there, there's uh, something called the signature of all things, which is this uh, this concept that things in nature telegraph information about their own nature through uh, their physical characteristics, which is not true. But I can understand that sort of poetic Victorian 
desire to have that to be the truth. It's really convenient. If it that would were be true. very convenient, wouldn't it? But you know, it gets into things like, well, you know, berries that look delicious are delicious. Well, yeah, that's because you've already learned that they're delicious. But again, they're mixing up cause and effect, right? And some berries that look delicious are super gonna poison you, like poison you to death. But those aren't important. Those are those are um, those are considered exceptions, and that really you need to look at everything holistically. And that's what we're talking about when we're we're saying that they exclude falsifiability. They want that holistic picture and things that don't line up with it. They're mere inconveniences. They don't disprove the theory as a whole. Whereas today we would look at that as a strike against the theory's validity overall. Phrenology got really, really popular between about 1810 and 1840, where you would actually have phrenologists going around like measuring people's heads, basically doing the whole palm reading thing but with your head or like a internet quiz nowadays yeah, they were like the buzzfeed quizzes yep. of snake oil salesmen i think you're mixing your metaphors <laughs> but i mean they would sell you things based on your personality oh, to help okay. temper because i mean we're still talking about a world that is viewing uh personality in light of humors and so yep. you would still even though this is a step towards something resembling actual scientific neurology uh you're still dealing with a lot of very um medieval sensibilities about how to go about tempering these things about a person so he's saying that like yeah maybe you have an overdeveloped uh criminal center of your brain but you can avoid that by you know tempering that and i think that would be a bucolic like a, a, a yellow phlegm uh uh personality by taking i think the opposite is blood i can't remember anymore man four humors they get real complicated blood sausage was probably popularized to deal with the criminal element in victorian society something with blood properties you know, uh, that's the only the explanation blood. i can see for blood sausage <laughs> i'm about uh, to alienate be... in your entire uh, listenership in the uk think, things like red meat that would be a good uh, example of something with blood properties Anyways, I know you're beholden to the former colonial masters. <laughs> Commonwealth, am I right? It, it was really the first attempt to scientifically study the biology of the brain and how different regions of the brain actually act on personality, on, on all sorts of things. It was mostly disproven by the 1840s, largely due to inconsistency in the discipline because... What happened as the discipline grew and they found more cases that didn't line up with that original map, they would do things like change the map or add new regions to the map or just make stuff up. It was pretty common, actually, just making the stuff up. I mean, a lot of these guys would just use tape measures. They wouldn't even use proper calipers to take their measurements <laughs> or they would just feel the head. Just yep. feel it. Yeah. No, I, I know it. My, I can feel it with my fingers that they're so used to this. So... I, I mean, it's, it's again, the definition of a pseudoscience. It's claiming to be based in this, this uh, scientific theory of regions of the brain controlling certain personality aspects. But as soon as it's scrutinized in any experimental way, it, it falls to pieces. There, there, was a, there was a French guy named uh, Jean-Pierre Florenz who was doing experiments on pigeons, experiments like cutting out portions of their brains and seeing what happened early biology gets real messy this is slightly before ethical review well you know 
on one hand, I'm real glad for ethical review. On the other hand, there's a lot of early science that just wouldn't have happened with her if it had been in place. What worries me is we're dealing with pigeons. That might pass ethical review right now. I don't know. It could. I'm not sure. Well, Florence has already, has already done it. So it's a lot easier for an ethical committee to put in place bans against it. That's the other kind of ironic thing about ethical committees. We don't have to do that anymore. We've already done check, it. We know Check what out happens. these results. And that's the thing about good science is that it's well documented. It's, er, it's repeatable. And therefore, once you've established that it's repeatable, you don't have to keep repeating it. You mm -hmm. already know what the outcome is going to be. And you can stop doing that experiment. Mm -hmm. So we could stop cutting pigeons' heads open yeah. and cutting out certain portions of the brains and see what happens. So we don't need to talk about the Nazis here then. Whoops. You know, there's a there's a there's a misconception that the Nazi scientists made certain advancements in medical science that wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't or if ethical um, concerns have been put in place. The big one that you'll hear is uh, studies on hypothermia. Uh, this is a misconception, actually. They did really bad science. Yeah, the, no. The, the guys it was, that were... It was just, how do people die? Yeah, they, they, were doing, they were doing really twisted, really evil stuff, and they weren't, they weren't documenting it properly anyways. So even if they had made any sort of discoveries of any sort, they weren't documenting it in a way that would actually be useful to the medical community anyways. There was nothing... Yeah, that, that, that misconception always kind of irks me a little bit because it's... Notable only for its monstrosity. Yeah, really it is. It really, really is. And I'd like to I'd like to take a moment and also mention the uh, horrors of Japanese scientists in the war, oh my which goodness. is frequently overlooked as bad or arguably worse than what the Nazis were doing. Yeah, some of the stuff that they did in Manchuria was just unspeakably terrible. And again, not well documented no, not not science not productive not yeah you're absolutely right Just not true science it, it did not help horrifying. us learn anything no that that whole misconception that we everything we know about hypothermia comes from nazi scientists i have no idea how that started i know it possibly because they did testing testing they, on hypothermia. they certainly did freeze people to death uh, they did that they didn't learn anything we didn't nope. already know and they didn't document it in a way that would teach us anything new no nothing good came of that Please don't ever say that. Certainly not anything medically relevant, because usually medicine is more interested in keeping people alive. Correct. So anyways, let's let's leave that alone yep, for a while. Yep. <laughs> really, the yeah, the, the whole pigeon thing really helped to, to kind of defuse any validity that phrenology ever had, because basically he was going like, oh, phrenology says if I cut out this part, this pigeon should get like super sad all the time. And sometimes it would just straight kill the patient or the, the pigeon. And sometimes it would straight, you know, uh, change its personality in a completely different way. Sometimes the pigeon would act like nothing had happened at all, which was really disturbing to people. I, I mean, why is this pigeon still fine? And, and the reality of it is that phrenology just had the brain completely wrong. It just wrong, everything about it wrong. And so Florent went on to try and figure out what exactly the brain did do, which was probably a more important endeavor than debunking phrenology because as prevalent as those guys were they were making a lot of changes in society let's put it that way it was it was as much a an oddity as it was anything else and people selling patent medicines were doing far more harm than anything that the phrenologists ever did so it's uh, your comparison was apt it's a, a lot closer to palmistry than physiology or or uh, medical science yeah but it is notable in its in its attempt at least to to 
uh, create a, a baseline for neurology. Now for the fun bit. Phrenology was also used for racist and misogynistic uh, reasons. Oh, good. Because you can't have any science that categorizes people that does not do this in the Victorian era. Sorry, it's not going to happen. We're not going to get to one where you're safe. That does not put white males above everyone else. You remember that bit I said about uh, affection for your children at the back of the brain? Yes. Uh, Female skulls in general uh, have a more developed back and, and kind of lower portion and tend to have lower foreheads hmm. it's just in general the way you know on average statistically speaking female uh, skulls are shaped in relation to male skulls again the differences are not statistically important but you do see a trend useful and that's enough for these people to latch on to and so they saw that this they saw this uh, overdevelopment of the back the lower back of the skull to be uh, associated with affection for children and for child rearing uh, an aptitude for child rearing which just confirms that the women should be home taking care of the kids naturally naturally also the high foreheads was considered to be associated with uh, artistic ability higher reasoning and logic sort of anything good about culture dignity mm-hmm. gentlemanliness Interestingly enough, the the frontal lobe is actually pretty crucial for a lot of these things. (laughs) Don't don't tell the phrenologists, though. But again, number one, men tend to have higher foreheads than women. And number two, white people tend to have taller craniums than either black people or Asian people, which just once again fit into their classification of the world weren't saying that uh, women or people of non-white races weren't capable of these things, just that they were much less likely to be any good at it. It's just harder for them. It's just they've got a lot more to overcome to get to this this point. It's, it's, it's terrible stuff, and we're going to continue to see this sort of classification. Now, it's also used to diagnose why people committed certain crimes, because... When Gaul was going through these these prisons and looking at people with different areas that were over or underdeveloped, obviously not every criminal is going to have the exact same overdeveloped area or conversely underdeveloped area that might point to like a higher moral sense or something like that or a civic duty or anything like that. So what he started doing was kind of classifying different criminals into different groups as to why they committed the crime, which is oddly progressive because he actually advocated for treating criminals differently depending on their motivations for committing the crime or their biological reasons for committing the crime, I should say. Um, if they were simply insane or uh, an idiot, which was a medical term at that point in time, just you know, less intelligent, then they should be basically put into a rehabilitation community and kind of kept separate from society, but like allowed to kind of live out their lives and be directed in a productive manner and things like that. That's remarkably progressive. It is for that point in time, yeah. Whereas anyone who was simply uh, brutish or, or violent that, that would continue to commit crimes for basically no good reason whatsoever other than that they were uh, biologically destined to do so should be locked away and kept from society, both as a punishment to keep them from continuing and to keep society safe from that person and that that punishment should be much more severe i mean very wrong-headed but it is 
interesting to see it as as starting to move away from purely a punishment based reasoning for something like a prison system and and starting to account for other factors or motivations. Well, we're looking at a um, we're looking at a move away from that classical system of uh, everyone as a rational actor. It's it's looking at criminals as people who are uh, subject to forces beyond just their free will, that there are certain things in their lives that could uh, predispose them to committing crimes. Now, again, as you said, wrongheaded, but interesting that they're starting to factor this stuff in. Still making decisions about it based on what's best for society as opposed to what is beneficial to the individual, but yeah, per- starting to starting to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one final uh, school that I wanted to talk about called uh, physiognomy. And this is uh, the assessment of character or personality based on physical appearance. Uh, largely the face, but the entire body kind of plays into it. Um, this has been a thing for millennia. I mean, there's there's classical forms of physiognomy that go back into ancient China. There were there was a, a Greek system of physiognomy. But the, the modern sort of resurgence of it was pioneered by a man named Johann Kasper Lavater. And he essentially suggested that and again, it's it's funny how these always kind of start off from fairly basic places and then they just take a hard left turn into horrible racist things. He basically suggested that a resemblance to a type of animal meant an affinity for the traits of that animal. This is where you get, you know, the whole, you know, people looking doe-eyed being sort of reserved and, and, and shy or, or uh, fox-like um, appearances relating to someone who's shrewd, which is not true. But again, you can kind of see this whole Victorian signature of all things poeticism in it where, you know, of course, someone who looks kind of like a cow would be docile like a cow. It's mm-hmm. just, they're, they're demonstrating their personality through their appearance. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. Never mind that as a whole, human beings look far more like each other than any other animal ever, 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 ever. It's, it's, it's kind of a weird system. But I mean, that in and of itself wasn't necessarily a problematic thing. It was really just a suggestion that maybe this is a way that we could use to classify uh, personalities. And it ended up being picked up as a a literary device quite heavily in Victorian times. I mean, every single Dickens character ever uh, conveys their nature through their appearance. Sherlock Um, Holmes's aquiline nose. Exactly. I mean, the picture of Dorian Gray, this is the entire basis of the picture of Dorian Gray. It's, it's, this novel does not work without sort of a a culturally intrinsic understanding of physiognomy the fact that there's no way that dorian gray should be able to be a horrible person and still look like a good person and that's not necessarily a problem as a literary device or as an interesting notion where it does turn into a problem is with a man named uh, cesare lombroso who was the founder of the italian school of positivist criminology He's an interesting guy. I mean, really, he's the one that's sort of pushing along these ideas that we just talked about of, you know, having to kind of classify criminals, sort of understand why people are committing the crimes that they're committing, looking for biological roots of criminal behavior. He was also a pretty horrible person. Oh. Based on his ideas and whatnot. Oh. He called it criminal atavism. Atavism is the the idea of sort of like a regression along an evolutionary path, I guess. And nothing dangerous there. He suggested that criminals in general, and, he, and and this came from his experience as a as a coroner. 
he he did autopsies of of hanged criminals and he noticed a number of traits that were very very common among criminals um and they were all if you read down the list it's all things that are quote-unquote regressive that make people look ape-like things like a heavy brow uh drooping eyes large ears enjoyed chewing nuts and berries (laughs) a flat nose sloping shoulders a pronounced coccyx i think my favorite one is tattoos which I don't know why he groups it in with the rest of them. I think that's really more. Well, the chimpanzees love running tattoo parlors. <laughs> you, know, you know, the tattoos that everyone used to have all over their body. Bred it out of us, though. Mm-hmm. Orang utans have the best needlework. <laughs> I, I mean, there's there was this thing called the degeneration theory that came out of Darwinism that was essentially that there are certain people who are more evolved than other people and therefore superior, which plays straight into social Darwinism, which again, super dangerous idea. And, and one which Darwin, I, I mean, there's such a, there's such a misunderstanding of evolution just everywhere. It's not a difficult uh, concept to teach, but it gets really muddied because it's used as a device in, in so many arguments and in so many, anyways, really all evolution says is that, the organisms that are most fit for their environment are going to be the ones most likely to pass on their genetic material. It's a very simple concept. It has nothing to do with superiority. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It just says fitness, and that's it. This gets turned into this idea that somehow the most intelligent uh, people and the most advanced societies, however you want to measure that, are therefore the most evolved and therefore the most important and therefore the best. Yada, 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 Ayn Rand. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So Lombroso is going through and he creates a fourth classification along with those other three distasteful ones, uh, calling them criminaloids. Criminaloids. People with all of these other regressive ape-like traits and basically saying that these traits make it so that these people can't help but be criminal. They have a less developed moral sense. They have a less developed ability to fit in with the rest of humanity, with the rest of society. And therefore, there's nothing you can really do for them. They're to be pitied. They're to be pitied, uh, but also to be watched Mm. with both eyes at all time. Because at any point in time, they could regress to their criminal behaviors. This was an extremely popular theory in the United States at the turn of the century. Of course it was. There's There's a really dark side to a lot of these advancements in biology and a lot of these classifications, which is eugenics, which I don't want to get heavily into, but... Really what this leads to when you when you read all of this stuff, when you read about people who cannot help but be criminal, people who are, you know, by their nature more violent, when you look at it on a macro level, you go, okay, well, these are the people who are most likely to commit crimes. Therefore, the best thing for our society is to limit the number of people with these traits because that is the thing that causes crime. This led to hundreds of thousands of people being executed, sterilized, all sorts of horrible, horrible mistreatments across the world in the late 19th, early 20th century in the name of social engineering, which, again, is is one of those things where it's easy to see where these things all started off. You can see the baseline. And then they take these horrible winding paths towards basically forgetting about these people as individuals and as human beings and, and really ignoring their rights as agents of free will. And it's it's really ironic that they call this the positivist <laughs> school of, of criminology. It's, it seems like it's named by someone deeply cynical. <laughs> I, I think Lombroso did see himself as a positivist. He saw this as an improvement in criminology because... 
he was counter to the classical school saying that everyone was a rational actor and therefore fully uh, responsible for everything that they did. Lombroso is saying, no, these people can't help the way that they are. We need to help them. We need to figure out a way for them to productively fit into society, not just, you know, continue to raise the types of punishment that we're putting on these people. And so at this point in time, you see prisons start to become a little bit more humane. You start to see um, punishments sort of at least more fit the crime than they certainly used to. And his ideas had a good effect in some areas. It's just that there is also that other side of the coin where it seems to support some some extremely racist, extremely sexist, extremely uh, violent ideas through social Darwinism and eugenics. And the sad truth of that is that these ideas didn't really lose their popularity until basically the Nazis took it too far and everyone went, whoa, okay, um, maybe we should rethink this whole thing. Godwin's Law makes sense for a reason. I mean, yeah, it's when, when you say the Nazis were fans of this, it makes people rethink things. It really does. So, I, I mean, yeah, these are these are the things that were sort of informing people's ideas about what made a criminal at this point in time. And we didn't really talk much on the air. I, I, I think I mentioned it to you before we started recording. But one of the things that I find interesting about criminology is that I think... I think people really want to know what makes a person commit a crime and they don't want that answer to be because of their individual motivations at that single point in time uh, because of, for example, mental illness, because of, you know, uh, context. Uh, yeah, context, exactly. A convergence of different motivations and uh, and circumstances that, that cause them to do this thing. I think they want a nice pat answer and because they look more like monkeys than the rest of us is a nice, simple answer. Even if largely untrue. Very much untrue. And again, this is one of those things that I'm sure they could have gone looking for these criminaloid uh, features throughout, throughout society and found them on plenty of very upstanding citizens. They didn't, they didn't go looking for it. And again, that, that makes it a pseudoscience. They, they didn't do the work to make sure that their theory was falsifiable. And Again, as we said at the beginning of the show, that wasn't a requirement until the 1930s. They weren't really considering that bad science because it hadn't happened. So it's not that they were completely negligent about it, but I think rather that they were following, number one, they were following an incomplete method. And number two, they couldn't really extract themselves as people of their time from this narrative of people of certain races or even people of certain appearances uh, as being far more likely to commit crimes. And the problem with that on a, a, law, a law enforcement level is that now you're looking for people who look like criminals when you're looking for criminals. And that's going to disproportionately shift the population of criminals in certain uh, directions, namely the poor immigrants and uh, anyone not white. And, and thus becomes a feedback loop because then if you go to the prison, oh, all the prisoners are people fitting this profile. Well, I mean, if you do an assessment, and I mean, an assessment itself is a problem, but if you do an assessment of intelligence on a, a, a prison population versus a, a general population, it's going to be lower. But 
the thing to point out is that those are the criminals that got caught. So, I mean, how good of a sample is that? It's 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 a really diff- difficult thing to measure what makes a person a criminal. That's that's not a really great thing. And here we run into the problem with social sciences because social science is a bad name. Mm. Because human beings aren't we're, we're not like you know, we're not like elementary particles. We're not like we're, we're not even like, you know, microbial structures. We don't operate on a simple set of rules. We have plenty of motivations, plenty of, you know, we have we have free will and we're not as simple as me checking to see whether there's a spot on your head that is bigger or smaller than it should be and going, yep, you're a criminal. And good, because that means that we can't exclude people from society based on physical features, because that's a that's a that's a bad idea. It's a monstrous idea. Let's not do that. We're better than that. Generally. So this has been like a super downer ride. So I thought I'd yep. follow up by uh-huh. uh, a third school of criminology known as the Chicago School. It was developed at <laughs> Noted the Noted also of for their architecture offshoot. <laughs> it was developed at the University of Chicago. There were a number of urban sociologists uh, in, there in the 20s. Professor Robert E. Park, Professor Ernest Burgess who noticed something that they started terming social ecology. And they noticed that when cities were growing, there were a number of concentric zones in the city that, you know, moving out from the core to the, the outlying uh, areas of the city tended to have varying crime rates. And what's more, uh, zones where it was transitioning from uh, one type to another tended to have the highest crime rates. And so they followed up on this, and this was the 1920s, so they did a better job of running the numbers, and they tried you know, other zones to see if they could find a, a similar thing to try and falsify it. But they noticed that it actually, it actually is a fairly good predictor of crime, um, how, or, or what stage of development a, a section of a city is in. And so they identified two major factors in likelihood of committing crimes. First one is crime as a function of uh, utility or desperation, mainly focusing on people who are too either poor or too um, uh, short on opportunities to do anything but commit a crime. So, I mean, either either like straight up the whole stealing a loaf of bread kind of thing, or really don't have any any career options other than crime that are likely to pan out for them. The other one is crime as a learned social behavior. So how common is it for that people around them to be criminal? How common is it for criminal behaviors to be considered acceptable in their direct socialization? This is pretty close with obviously a number of tweaks to modern criminology, to how we think about criminology today, because really there's not a lot of good predictors for criminal behavior. Racial predictors don't really work unless you're combining them with uh, things like poverty levels. It's, it's I.e. the things that actually do the predicting. That actually are predictors, yeah. I mean, if you look at just those numbers, yeah, sometimes they kind of work out. But if you combine them with their actual socioeconomic status, it makes a lot more sense why. And there are plenty... And, 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 and the racial component becomes just a, uh, a historical coincidence well it's a symptom in a lot of ways of that positivist school because i mean that was a big factor in sort of the stratification of urban development was this sort of 
uh, they, they call it streaming, where as a neighborhood got better or got worse, you have usually more affluent people either moving to it or moving away from it and uh, less affluent people either being pushed out of it or drawn to it because of its relatively low cost of living compared to the rest of the city. And this tends to concentrate people in areas. And yeah, it's, it's, it's very much... Uh, and then what you get is, is people who are less well-off, who therefore are more likely to turn to crime in desperation, and therefore you get communities of people who uh, have normalized crime as a societal behavior. That's a lot closer to the predictors that we use today. There, there are other models that have been added in, but yeah, really all those racial components are just a, a reflection of our society as a whole far more than anything else. There's nothing inherent about anyone, and I, I shouldn't even have to say that out loud, really, but there's, there's, there's no ethnic component to whether or not somebody's going to be a, a, a criminal. That's, that's insane. That's, that's backwards racist thinking. The Chicago school has been slowly coming in it, it, it took a couple decades to to really get rolling as as a predominant school of, of thought and criminology but it really has taken over for the most part at least as far as law enforcement is concerned things like heat maps for predictors of, of breaking and entering things like that they're they're colorblind they're based on socioeconomic status they're based on certain regions of the the city and what type of transitions they're going through at this point in time even the average age of the of the neighborhood can have uh, impacts on this stuff. But yeah, it's, it's kind of the point that we've gotten to. It has nothing to do with measuring anybody's head, which is a good change. And what I think is most important is we've moved away from looking at individuals and what about them is going to make them commit a crime. And it started starting to look at people as social groups because we're not these high spirited renaissance rational actors of free will but we're also not you know these we're not unthinking animals either you know there's there's a lot of things that go into the decisions that any person makes and and you know trying to treat us as anything but complex actors is not going to get you a good answer and it's not going to produce tools that you can use to actually try and combat crime and Mm -hmm. and deal with it at a social level exactly and so really, the, the, the history of criminology, at least on a major level, has been, you know, trying to figure out an easy way to identify someone as a criminal and failing miserably, basically at both ends of the spectrum of human behavior, because we're not at either spectrum of those behaviors. And so, I mean, yeah, it does have a, a more positive ending, at least. I think people in general still want some sort of idea of who to be afraid of or who to be extra careful around or uh, who to worry about. And I don't think that's necessarily a thing that you can have with hundred percent certainty. I don't know that that people really, but I mean, it's not like we still use racial profiling anywhere ever. Oh yeah. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, right. Useful to look at this though, as a means of trying to combat that thinking. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I find I find the story of criminology interesting in in, uh, in the way that it reflects, you know, our, our thinking about human beings, who we are, what we do, what makes us tick, and it's had some bad effects, and some of those bad effects uh, still continue to this day, but we're doing better. I feel like that should be like the tagline for history. <laughs> 
We're doing better be- every day. We're doing better <laughs> with a question mark. Mm. But yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of what we did uh, to try and figure out crime on a on a macro level. Anyways, I think next time we'll try and look at sort of the tools that we've used to fight specific crimes. When I say fight crime, I think of Batman. Yeah. I assume this is some sort of utility belt catalog that you're going to provide. Just wait till we get to the bat shark repellent. It's going to blow your mind. Sounds fantastic. So I think we'll we'll leave criminology as a, as a larger discipline there. It's probably going to creep back in. And next time we'll look at... I mean, everyone wants to talk about Sherlock Holmes, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. We'll talk about him next time. Yeah. All right. The move to a more statistical and systems-based model of criminology really pulls it out of the realm of history and puts it firmly in the purview of sociology. But earlier and less scientific schools of thought are such a strong reflection of the times in which they were conceived that they give us a window into what people thought about our worst natures. This picture can be uncomfortable and difficult to talk about sometimes, but it's worth it for the insight it can lend. Next time, we'll be looking at the rise of the detective in law enforcement and the development of their tools and methods that would lead to modern forensic work. That episode will be up on January 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI 101.